Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I said, we'll be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 8 to 14 this evening. And as we uh, continue in chapter 16, we need to note a very ominous reality that is poised throughout all these uh these uh, verses, and that is the uh, the striking rate of death, which continues throughout this chapter. It reminds you of if you uh, read any form of history, or or even go back to your your history books and and your classes in history, and and you think about many times in history, you could see the Roman Empire after Nero, and and the the four governors that uh, seek to be able to become king after. He, he and uh, in, in, in one year, four kings dethroned and, and beheaded or, or killed, or even uh, to the revolution, not the uh, American Revolution, but the French Revolution. And uh, you read through the pages of history there, and I think one of the most uh, uh, interesting aspects of this is that the role that the guillotine played throughout those, those days and years of history. That silhouette of the guillotine, the blade poised to descend upon the next victim over this period of years, 17,000 or so victims were beheaded from this guillotine. You picture that dark, stormy sky as it's overhead, the tumultuous atmosphere of the reign of terror as it's known. King Louis the 16th killed, sentenced to death at a vote of 380, 310. I wish you would have been nicer to those uh, 70 or so people that voted to be able to swing the tie. But here mainly because uh, evidence was found in his house of these, uh, these other parties in one of his secret cabinets in the Tuileries Palace. But uh, one of the key players in the French Revolution, Maxi- uh, Maximilien Robespierre, uh, you know, uh, a brutal a man becomes a, a tyrant. Uh, he he, he is, first comes, he, he sees himself fighting for, for the working class. They had three levels of classes in the French, and, and, and the third class, he, he sought himself to be a, a fighter of these uh, people and uh, what seems noble in his aspirations rises to, to greed and power. Uh, he he stands in this time he, he, a member of, of the committee of public safety, and exactly that's exactly what it did not do. Uh, you know it, it uh, strikes terror. Uh, Danton said in the the hearts of the people, so that the people don't have to. You know, and all of these things uh, happening in the guillotine becomes one of the aspects of this vicious cycle of death after death stri- struck throughout all of the people, the expressions of despair and anguish. Uh, just throughout these years, just time after time. And Maximilien Robespierre uh, initially held strong, really, against... Uh, Opinions of the death penalty. He thought it was un- cruel, uh, um, you know, uh, unhumane. Uh, but yet, <laughs> he became one of the key persons that would send people uh, 
during this reign of terror. Robespierre's stance shifted dramatically. He becomes this prominent member in the Committee of Public Safety, and he wields a significant influence over the revolutionary policies, including the use of the guillotine as a tool for mass executions. So he, uh, he, he orders thousands of people to go to death's door, viewing them as a necessity of sacrifice, uh, preserving the republic, in which quickly decayed uh, what sought to be able to be a, a revolution of the people was not that. Rights were dismissed. Innocence was thrown out the door. Haste to be able to try and fit this stance. But here, you think of the symbol of monarchy now gone, with Louis dead, swept away for this tide of revolution. And so you see this turmoil, upheaval, what was rejoiced in some, mourned when another, this profound tragedy. But, uh, again, history teaches nothing new. If you're a, a scholar of history, you could almost say that every test is the same. That many empire will rise and fall. Many leaders will uh, change their positions. They will align with things that are not their initial policy. But again, again, it's nothing new. You read through the Bible. You find these reigns of terror marked throughout all of the stories in the Bible. The kingdom of Israel marked with this quick succession of kings. There's not a guillotine in the background, but a sword, a dagger, a friend, a foe. And just as the reign of terror in France saw the rise and fall of Maximilian, Robespierre, uh, and countless others, so did ancient Israel witness the fleeting reigns of monarchs who judged, uh, were judged before their actions uh, before God. We're reminded of this reality that is throughout all of history of divine justice of a higher authority. But instead of a guillotine and committees of public safety, we have a sword in this story and a party where one man gets drunk. The famous line, you might have all heard this, uh, you might have all said this, who died and made you king? Well, in reality, in 1 Kings chapter 16, time and time again, the reality is the king died and I made me king. So as we saw two weeks ago, we saw the shift on to uh, over in the, the kingdom of Israel, uh, the, the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, the first king, led Nadab, uh, his son, was dethroned by Bashar, and Bashar took the throne. And uh, as we saw last week, Bashar was warned by the prophet uh, Jehu, the son of Hanani, uh, that he was warned as we then moved to Elah, but he was warned in, in chapter 16, verse 2 and 3, since I, the Lord, exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, and you have walked the way of, in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins. Behold, I utterly swept away Bashan, his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And so here, 
here's the warning that we know is coming. We see what is around the corner. Now, before we move to Elah uh, and his reign, I want to further point out what this consequence, what we continually see in 1 Kings, particularly as we see the connection of 1 Kings being really about the judgment of God's jealousy falling upon his people because of their uh, breaking of the second commandment, the making of idols specifically, but also the worshiping of idols or the worship false worship of God. And what we noticed is we see a wicked king, Jeroboam. We see a wicked king in Bashar, who do wicked deeds, who lead the people astray. They're approached and warned by prophets of their wicked ways, and they're told specifically by the prophet that their house would be destroyed, both in a very, very similar way as we saw last week with Bashar. It almost not word for word, but summary fashion of word for word of what had been told to uh, Jeroboam. But yet, they have long reigns. Jeroboam's 22 years, uh, uh, Bashar's 24 years. But yet, we see their sons rule in their place, but they have short reigns. Not only do they have short reigns, they're the ones that fall uh, to the punishment that their dads of what they're done, their punishment of their father. Why? Well, when we specifically, again, work, look at the second commandment found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 6, they'll say, say, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We've pointed that out here, this, this jealousy provoking the Lord to sin as this jealousy which has come up. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So again, often what we think, what's the second commandment? And often in our minds we think, don't make idols. Don't worship idols. We, we think of this summary point and we're not good at understanding the whole commandment of what it teaches. Here specifically, Paul makes the connection there with honoring your parents that it says it's the first commandment with a promise. The promise that you will, it will go well. You will live long in the land. And Paul makes the, the point of not specifically of the honoring of the commandment, but the, the consequence of what that looks like. But often the commandments have appeared with them some other aspect, not just the commandment in themselves. And specifically here, the commandment is don't make idols, don't worship idols, but serve God alone as the first commandment does, specifically because God is a jealous God. And what is he going to do? He's going to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children in the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. And that's exactly what we see here. We see the reverse principle underneath David that he showed steadfast love and faithfulness to the descendants of David because of David's love and honor of God himself. But here we see the reverse. Here God is visiting the iniquity upon the children of the fathers. And what we've seen time and time again as as we go back all the way back to in 1 Kings, specifically as when we were talking about the temple, one of the key verses that came up, if we remember that, but Deuteronomy chapter 12, specifically verse 5, was heightened. 
when we said, you sh- But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and to make his habitation there. So here, God had chosen Jerusalem to be the place where he put his name, where he places his name and his habitation in that spot of Jerusalem. But specifically behind Deuteronomy chapter 12, before we get to verse 5, we have verses 1 and 4, which say these are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord your God of your fathers has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places that the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. Dispossesses serve their God on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So specifically, what we see here is the second commandment once again. What we see is that here you're to go in, you're to cut the idols down. Specifically with the instructions, you're not to worship God in that way. You're going to destroy the name out of every place. The third commandment, right? You shall honor the Lord in his name. But here we see specifically the second commandment, that here we see that connection with God establishing the place with his temple, and yet the sins of Jeroboam in establishing other places for people to worship, and other places where people would go and bow down to these carved images directly in violation of what God had told them to do, and specifically why he had told them to be able to build the, build the temple, not to worship in the way that other nations worship. That's exactly what the sin of Solomon was. Here, a great, great man who built uh, the temple for the Lord, and yet in his later years he turned and began to worship, specifically establishes all this worship so his wives could worship their gods. And that has a run-on effect in his kings, in the kings to come, and specifically we see it all throughout the nation of Israel. That here God is going to visit the iniquity of the sins of the children because of what their fathers had done. That you might say Paul was somewhat true when he says this is the first commandment with a promise. There's a promise in the second commandment. The promise is that God's going to visit the iniquity on the fathers and their children. And he's also going to promise to show his steadfast love to those who keep his commands. But specifically, I think Paul is speaking about the the temporal promises that are ever before the people. But I won't go into that, and I'm not trying to question the Holy Spirit or Paul. But here, what we see specifically is God visiting the iniquity of the children... Now it says up to the third it means up to the third and fourth generation. It doesn't mean you have to go to the third and fourth generation. So what we see here is a wicked king and his son suffers the consequences because of their father. So now with that in mind, let's look at the son of Bashah, Elah, and his short lived and short reign. Not the shortest, mind you, that will be next time, but here we'll look at this reign. And we'll have this recurring comment that we 
potentially, if we have time, we'll look at his short reign, and then if we have time, um, uh, this other comment that we see throughout First and Second Kings. So, what do we see in Elah? We see, beginning in verse eight, in the twenty-sixth year of Asa, the king of Judah, Elah, the son of Bashar, began to reign in the over Israel in Tizra, Tizza, and he reigned two years. So Asa, again, remember, he's in the southern kingdom. He's, he's reigning a very long time. His reign is 41 years. And when you have reigns of two years or even 24 years, you're going to have a lot of reigns in this period of time. So about six kings reign in the period of time of one king in, uh, in the south, Asa. So here uh, Eli is, is, is in Israel. Is Tizah is the, the capital of Israel at this time. Remember, uh, during the period of Judges, what would happen is, is the capital would almost move where the Judges were. You saw even with Saul, with Samuel, um, and then you saw it with Saul, and then it finally moved to Jerusalem where this establishment was. Now that's the capital of Judah. That's going to be rock. Eventually we'll see Tizah um, turned and we'll see Samaria become the capital. Uh, that will be in some time at the end of chapter 16, underneath Omri. But here, he's there, but we find out a little bit of his reign. He reigns two years, and we find out a little bit about him and his reign in verses 9 and 10. This is what we see in verses 9 and 10. But his servants, Zimri, commander of half his, and that's Elah, uh, conspired against him. When he was at Tizar, drinking himself drunk in the house of Azar, who was over the household of Tizar, Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned in his place. So you might say, well, we don't really find out much about his reign, but actually even in this two verses, we can actually find a little bit about what it was like underneath Elah's reign, even though it was for a short period of time. The first thing is that we find out about Zimri is that he's the commander of half of his chariots. Now, if you need two people to manage your chariots, you've got more than enough chariots, depending on who you're talking to. But specifically, uh, two people to look after your chariots means that there's a sizable amount for that to be able to happen. Put it in, into some form of perspective. They when underneath Solomon, they used to have an officer over, that's what Jeroboam used to do, an officer over every tribe of Israel. So just to put it into perspective, at least you've got some sizable amount for you to be able to have two people to manage that. Now, what does that, what's that comment mean in this situation? Generally speaking, when we see the term chariots throughout the Bible, it's a negative connotation mainly because of the connection to Egypt. Egypt was known for its horses and its chariots. It was a sizable army that was known throughout all, all of history for this. Now, I say generally speaking, it's not a hard and fast rule. David had chariots. But specifically, what we see when David's reign happens is he doesn't have an excessive amount of chariots, he defeats uh, some people there in Chronicles chapter 18 or 2 Samuel chapter 8. And here David took from him a thousand chariots, 7,000 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David ham- hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left for enough for a hundred chariots. 
So what we see here is David has a hundred chariots, but he specifically downsizes these chariots not to have an excessive amount. So again, throughout the Bible, we see chariots kind of not necessarily a good thing. The warning is that it grows. You saw it in, 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 in Solomon acquiring many horses and chariots. I think the warning specifically comes to kings in particular in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 17, specifically with horses. But again, I think um, why you have horses is that also chariots are connected there. But uh, the warning is that he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way. And specifically, again, the warning that Samuel gave of what kings would do in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground to reap his harvest and make his implements of war and equip, equipment of his chariots. So again, he will care only for himself in this time. Now again, generally, this is the principle that we see. It's hard to be able to draw a hard and fast thing saying chariots are evil. Just generally, that's what we see. Possibly, you see, it underlined in Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Thus, we see maybe the principle there is that many people who acquire many chariots are doing so because they're not trusting in God to be able to deliver themselves. So it's a false sense of trust. So you might then say the principle in the Bible is not chariots are bad, but the fundamental underlying of why you would need a lot of chariots is because you don't trust God to be able to protect you. Maybe that's the biblical principle you can underline in this understanding here. So we see Elah connect and have many chariots, enough that he has two people to be able to look after them. But the second thing we learn about him is also quite a bit of a fool. Notice that he gets drunk. That he specifically drinks himself to the point of being drunk. So it's not merely that he merely just accidentally had quite a lot. He, he drunk to the point where he got drunk. And the emphasis is on himself here. He wasn't coerced or first forced to be able to do this. Now again, we see that the, the general principle is, the underlying principle in the Bible is that drunkenness is the sin. Drinking alcohol is not sinful. Again, why would Jesus turn change water to wine if it was sinful for people to drink wine? Wouldn't it, he then be converting and changing wine to water? That would be how he would purify that. But again, it's then not saying that there's no wisdom in not drinking some people I know choose not to drink because they see the dangers in their own life, in their past struggles, and avoid that situation. Others see the effects of alcohol in other people's lives. And they say, that is not wise. I'm just going to avoid it altogether. Now, specifically, again, with Elah, what we see that maybe this is a practice that is crept in from other nations, it's time and time again, I think you see these type of situations where there's parties happening and people all gathered drinking to get drunk. And it's a sign of power and significance in, in 
in these situations. Specifically, we'll see it later in, in chapter 20. And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths. He and the 82 kings who had helped him. So here we see other nations drinking in the middle of the day, drinking to the point of getting drunk. And maybe we see Elah copying the practices that other kings have there. But again, throughout the Bible, the clear principle is drunkenness is the sinful action. Particularly, drunkenness is actually equivocated to being the fool. Remember Nabal in 1 Samuel chapter 25, and Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry with him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing until the morning light. Or, in Proverbs 36, like a thorn that grows up in the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. So again, the drunkenness and, and seeing the fools uh, connect that here the drunkard is like being compared to the fool, just like Nabal was. It's exactly what Nabal means in Hebrew, the fool. So, and also you see the image then of drunkenness throughout the Bible is not specifically just people who are drunk, but groping around in like the lost in the dark. As Job says in chapter 12, they grope in the dark without light, and he makes them stagger like a drunkard, drunken man. But it is interesting, there is kind of a pattern also in the Bible that godly people are accused of being drunk. This is an interesting thing, just a random thing to be able to think about. But here's a couple of examples here. Hannah, as he, is she, she's speaking to Eli, and she was speaking in her heart, the, her lips only moved, her voice was not heard, and therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. So here, she's being godly, she's praying, she, she's stammering with her words, but praying in her heart, and yet Eli says, well, she's drunk. Think about Acts, when they go out and they're prophesying in tongues, and, and people, well, they must be drunk, clearly. Or Jeremiah in chapter 23 Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me, my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. So again, just an interesting random part, part of the study where uh, we see that con- those connections. So we see Eli, even though we see this short reign, we can see these two major things that are uh, uh, written to us to be able to understand a little bit about his reign. So we see it's not positive, but we see Zimri come in and take control and take over. We see this in verse 10, as we read before, that Zimri came in, he struck him down, killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And we read this in Hebrew, it's very, very sudden. Time after time, he came in, he struck him, he killed him, he reigned in his place. It was just this very... You know, short-lived thing. If you're writing a novel, you'd make it very dramatic of how he entered the room and what he did. And, but yet, in the narrative, it's very, very sudden, very, very quick. Now, here's a good point of that long lecture I gave that one time about how we date the reigns of kings. Notice just even this short year time, we see in verse 8, there's a 26th year of King of Asa, King of Judah. He reigned over... 
Israel for two years. And then down to verse 10, you see he came in and struck him in the 27th year of Asa, the king of Judah, and reigned in his place. So how can he reign for two years and yet have the 26th year to the 27th year of King Asa? Again, here's where you have different counting methods. We understand it today. How old is your child? You know, we don't specifically say this many days and minutes. We can generally say this two years, and we can, you know, have different days of, of counting all those things. We, we understand it to some extent. Um, but we see that here, even in these couple of verses here. So now we start to begin to see a little bit of... Um, Zimri and his reign, which rolls into next week as well, but, but in, in verse 11 to 14, we see, And he began to reign. As soon as he had seated himself on his throne, he struck down all the house of Bashat. He did not leave a single male of his relatives or his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Bashat, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Bashat by Jehu the prophet. And all the sins of Bashan, and the sins of Elah, his sons, which they sinned, and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So again, not only we see that Zimri comes in by force, taking it in, you know, in one verse, uh, reigning, and he reigned in his place, but the next verse we see, and when he begins his reign, he seats himself. You see that the force of which Zimri comes in to be able to take the throne by killing the king, but then also just seating himself on the throne. Other times when we've seen kings come to, to power, David particularly, we see all the elders of Israel come and kind of appoint themselves or the prophet appoint the king and, and a whole ceremony here. But here we see Zimri just come in and seat himself. Reminds you of uh, Absalom and Adonijah. But we see all these times where, you know, they come in by force, and that's what we see here But with Bashar. And we see that vengeful, spiteful actions that we saw before, with Bashar specifically, taking out uh, Nadab, the son of Jeroboam. And we see Bashar doing the exact same thing. He comes in, and he cleans house. He kills every single male, the relative's and even his friends, that there's no one else who would have been an ally to Bashar or his household. Absolutely brutal. But we also see that tension in verse 12, where here Zimri destroys all the house of Bashar according to the word of the Lord. So we see the Lord prophesy and warn and instruct and bring say this is judgment is coming, but this judgment comes through the hand of another. God doesn't strike Bashar down, dead, as he can do and does do in certain situations. But here we see the providence of God through prophecy, but also human will. Who wanted to be king? Zimri. Zimri wasn't there going, oh, I've got to fulfill the word, Lord. I'm going to try and seek to be obedient to this. Specifically, what we see is, is Zimri's heart and desire to want to be king, and he, he sees that opportunity at that moment when Elah was drunk to be able to strike him down. But even in this time where we're, we're sitting and, and speaking about Zimri on his throne, 
we're told again by the author about what is the sin that keeps on creeping in. Specifically, Elah, and Elah is destroyed because of their sin. Again, remember, what is the second commandment? The second commandment is specifically about making idols. What do you see in verse 13 there? Why was he struck down? Because of all the sins of Hashan and the sins of Elah his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now again, we see who made the initial idols. It's Jeroboam who established these golden calves. Now unless all of these kings are remaking all these idols which is the possibility as well, but they become their idols over that period of time. That here you see the sins of Bashah, the sins of the father in the second commandment, but also the, the second generation here, third or fourth generations, the sins of Elah. And their sins leading Israel to be able to make Israel sin. And all with the result of provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Again, when we, when we think about the second commandment, often what is what is highlighted is don't make idols to worship them, and that's how we normally understand the second commandment: don't worship idols. So this is where a lot of Roman Catholic and stuff practice of making images of many different sorts, specifically even of the Godhead, specifically even Christ, they, they will make images because they, they say, well, it's not the making of the images that's forbidden in the second commandment. It's the worshiping of the image which is forbidden in the second commandment. But that's not how we understand the second commandment, because the second commandment then would just be the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And so, here, um, the, the, forbid, the aspect is not only the worshipping of images or worshipping God in a way that he did not prescribe in his word, but specifically the making of the ways in which to be able to worship. And you see that here. In, it, they're not made, he's not provoked to anger because they worship their idols, although that's an aspect. They're, he's provoked to anger because of their idols. Having them, having them, creating them is the sin as well in the second commandment. Now, we start to see how this sin starts to affect other generations. That long-lasting effect that you see that through the sins of the Father comes that judgment and condemnation. Bashar's house was destroyed as God had told um, through his son, Elah. Now, Bashar, again, lived a long, happy life. He had a long reign. He wasn't stabbed. He wasn't dethroned. But that judgment come, and we see this clearly throughout all the Bible, specifically in Adam. It's Paul's big argument in Romans chapter 5, where Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So you see, the first part is here death comes into the world because of Adam's sin. 
That's the first part of the argument. But if you follow it as well, what it says, it's not merely that you're dying because Adam sinned. What it specifically says is death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. Because Adam was a sinner, then we see all, everyone else who followed from him, sinners. So you see this idea of what, what is called a covenant head, a federal head, to be able to understand this. That all sinned, not only death is due because of original sin, but everyone sins. Louis Burkhoff, commenting on uh, Theodore Beza, says, Beza especially emphasized the fact that Adam was not only the natural head of the human race, this is where everyone comes from, but also the federal representative. And that consequently, his first sin is imputed as guilt to all his descendants. And because all are guilty in Adam, they're also born in a polluted condition. So here, he's not merely just the father of all humans, He's specifically the father of everyone in their sin as well. So you see that principle of the guilt passed down to the third and fourth generation. You see that in Adam very clearly. You could go to many other times and situations where you see that. Now before we all throw our hands up in the air and cry that this is not fair, why should I be punished for what Adam did? Paul is making... Another point in Romans chapter 5 that we don't want to decry and say specifically and say, let's get rid of this system straight away. Because actually the reverse is actually true as Paul points out in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, your Adam's sin leads to, leads to condemnation. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So we might not want to talk about Adam's imputed guilt to us, our original sin, but we have to understand this is how the gospel works. That it's through our covenant head, our federal head of Jesus Christ, in which all are saved. Because if we were held responsible for each of our, not only Adam's sin and our sin, then we'd be found guilty, even if we didn't have our own sin, which is not true. But even in a hypothetical situation, we're just pronounced guilty because of Adam's sin. But you see, the, the reverse is true there of Christ. The Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. So if you want to say this is unfair, then you go to this side and you say, well, I want this. Often that's the way, like when we're talking with kids, right? They're quick to be able to announce what is unfair for them, but they don't see uh, parity and, and fair, fairness approached when they're the ones who have the two cookies or whatever. But here... Because of Christ, we are made righteous. And we truly can say, this is not fair. But that's why it's called grace and mercy. And that's why we see, even in the second commandment, that pronouncement of the gospel, where here God will visit the iniquities of the fathers of the third and fourth generation, but specifically will show his steadfast love to the thousands 
who love in him, keeping his commandments. Now, what does that mean? Well, specifically, what we see is that fulfillment in Christ. Paul's point in Romans chapter 5 is that here Christ has been obedient. Therefore, that obedience is now our obedience. Charles Spurgeon said this, Jesus is the representative man for his people. The head has triumphed and the members share in the victory. While a man's head is above the water, you cannot drown his body. And here, that's the image that we have. Because of Christ, the federal head, the covenant head of his covenant, the keeping, uh, obedient son, therefore is impassed and passed down to the thousands of generations that precede him. Do we see that faithfulness? Or as Charles Wesley puts it so well often in, in hymns, he says, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? He died for me and who caused his pain. For me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And so we see this principle that throughout what we'll see pattern after pattern is this, the guilt of the children is, is, is they bear the punishment for the sins of their father. And what we see is, is the exact opposite is true. Now, I mentioned before that we would probably um, go through and, and look, if we have time, of this other comment in verse 14, uh, the rest of the books of Acts of Elah and all that he did. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles, the kings of Israel? But I'll have to leave you on your edge of your, edge of your seat so we can do that another time. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.